0: Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. This song's long. (laughs) Yes, it is long. Aluminum. aluminum. There's our test word. So this is our first non-solo podcast. Uh, Our guest today is uh, Dr. Steven Offenberger. Uh, He's the best man in my wedding, one of my best friends. Uh, Pretty cool to be hanging out with him in in Bali the last few weeks. Today's the last day, so leave it to me to wait till the last minute to record our (laughs) podcast. Uh, So uh, we're going to introduce Steve and just kind of ask him some questions. Uh, Steve worked with me for about seven years in San Antonio and then Uh, Decided to run away, (laughs) run away to to Asia uh, and just kind of get his motivations behind that, kind of the journey and then some different changes here. Uh, But but Steve and and I are, are very complimentary personalities. We've went to a bunch of seminars all over the country. Uh, and to use a Shaquille O'Neal rap lyric, we yep. were uh, coast to coast, Seattle to Chicago uh, on our seminars. i uh, been to a lot of bad ones, a lot of good ones. Uh, traveled all over, nerded out, yep. uh, nerded out together in San Antonio. Uh, but Steve has a very different way of looking at things. I've learned <laughs> a lot from him uh, because I'll have to run 13 tests on somebody Uh, And Steve will just look and go, yeah, your left hip's jacked up. Uh, And I'd be like, I'll get to the same spot, but it takes me a lot longer and it's a lot different journey. So uh, first question I want to lead off with is uh, what precipitated your decision to leave a successful career and practice in the States and just travel the world?
1: Oh, man. Um, You know what precipitated it? I think we've always, we were going to do it. Um, I had done this before. So uh, after I left my first career and finished school, um, me and my wife, Tanya, um, we had decided to travel then. And when we left and came back that time, we both promised each other that we would do it again. So it was kind of always in the back of my mind that we were going to leave for sure. Um, I did not expect to be... um, as successful as I was and as happy as I was. Uh, so that was a little harder leaving, um, San Antonio, especially, but, um, we just kind of knew that we had to do it because, um, I mean, making money is great and it's fun. Uh, and San Antonio was amazing and the practice was amazing. Uh, and I really loved what I did, but, you know, being that young and being that busy, um, you know, you just want to, I don't know, sometimes for me, um, I have to shake things up really big in order to, to change some of my mindset or to change my perspective and outlook. Uh, so it wasn't anything, one thing that pre- precipitated us leaving. It was just always there. It was kind of the elephant in the room of it's not, are we going to do this? It was just when. And so eventually we just had to say, you know, we're leaving in three months, which is pretty much what happened. It was quite sudden and just. Yeah. <laughs> You know, when we told everybody, it was almost like we were running away like she was pregnant and we were going to go have a shotgun marriage. But it was it was just always there in the back of our mind. So for us, it was kind of, uh, you know, we knew it was going to happen and we had talked about it with other people. But eventually we just had you just have to do it. I don't think you're ever really ready and I don't think you're ever really prepared. uh, And it's very scary doing it the second time uh, in comparison to the first, because we had so many, so much more good things uh, to leave behind that uh, it was, yeah, it was interesting. I was definitely way more scared this time than I could have ever been the first time.
0: And was there ever a point that you can remember that you were over here and you doubted your decision? Oh, I mean, I don't say I was over here. I literally got on
1: the plane and I doubted it. I doubted it until we, until we were in Thailand for the first month. Uh I doubted it, but once I kind of relaxed and my mind cleared up a little bit, I knew I'd made the right decision uh pretty quickly it was i don't know how to explain that, but I just knew that I could never get this time back in my life, and this adventure would be really life changing for me uh, and it has been um so the doubts went away they were there i mean like. I'll tell you, when I was walking out of uh, the clinic in Leon Springs, um, my last day there was so emotional for me because um, I loved it there. I loved the staff, I love my patients, I loved the people, I loved what I was doing, uh, and I really was like, "Man, you you could be making the biggest mistake of your life." But I had some really good uh, conversations with people who I really respected uh, at the time, uh, who were much older, and they gave me kind of the confidence to be like, you know. I can always go back and make money. I can always go build a practice. That isn't the question anymore. So um, it was helpful, but I can't tell you that I wasn't nervous, like really, really
0: nervous. I was nervous for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you and your dad, man. Yeah.
0: My dad's like, what the F are you doing? He's like, I don't even understand that.
1: Yeah. And I I will say like when when I would talk to people at the clinic, because I'm a big, uh, all of my patients who I respected I would always ask them their opinion. And and this was one of the questions that came up over and over again. And it was split 50 50. Some people are like, you're absolutely insane. You're going to ruin your career. You don't get it. And then the other 50 percent were like, hell, yeah, jump. You just need to go. If you're already thinking about it, then you've already made the decision. And that was something that I remembered. I don't even know who told me that, but. It was very insightful for me because I did realize like if it's in the back of your head that you might want to do it, you just need to do it. Because if not, you're going to question it. There are some people like your dad who the, 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 the thought would never even enter his mind. So it's not a question of whether he's going to do it or not. He doesn't. He didn't even think about it. But there are people and I've met a bunch of people here in Bali too. Uh, one of them. I actually convinced her to quit her job, which I was pretty proud of. She was a successful lawyer. And she's super happy. She went and traveled and did some stuff. And uh, it's a really good thing for her. So, I mean, if you have it in your mind already, you've already made the decision. The universe is just either, you know, trying to tell you something or there is something deep inside that you're looking for and you don't
0: know how to find. So I think that's a big one. Yeah, my dad looked at you like you were gonna have a sex change operation. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we mentioned Thailand, we mentioned Bali. Can you kind of go through Carmen San Diego style on where you started and how long you spent in each place, and and where you guys have visited? Yeah.
1: Um, so we took off from San Antonio. We had a very, very long flight uh, into here and we landed in Bangkok and we had a one way ticket, too. So this wasn't um, you know, we knew we were going to be gone for a while. Um, We landed in Bangkok. I think we stayed there for maybe two weeks, which was too long. Uh, And then from there, uh, we went north uh, into a city called Chiang Mai, which is a northern Thailand We spent uh, a little over a month there and that was still actually been one of my favorite cities that we've been to. It's a really, it's a, it's just super cool. I don't know how to explain it. Um, There's a little town outside of that called Pi. We spent a week there uh, and that was actually a really special time for us. Uh, Tanya got her letter that she was accepted into her master's program while we were in Pi in the morning I can literally still remember sitting on the porch uh, and the sun was coming up and she just said, hey, I got my letter and I got accepted. So um, we stayed there for a little while. I would definitely recommend people to go back there. We left from there, went to and I'm sorry, I I am actually thinking because it's been over a year and a half of traveling. So um, we went into after that into Phuket. Uh, I knew some people down there, um, Mike Swick and Mark Bogutsky who run AKA Thailand. Uh, and so we went to go kind of meet Mark down there. I've known him for a long time uh, and we stayed in Phuket for four months, I think. So that's probably, we're reaching my six month mark right about then. Um, during that time, I can tell you where we've been to, maybe not always the the yeah. timeline of everything. Um, we went to Kuala Lumpur for my 35th uh, birthday, which was really cool. Um, we went to, oh yeah, yeah. So we went to Koh Phangan after, um, Phuket and we stayed there for two months. And that has been kind of like our magical place. Uh, when we traveled the first time 10 years ago, uh, took off for a year, that is where we ended our journey and we came back early and, I cried on the beach when I had to leave there. So that was the place that we were like, oh, we're going back there. And we really wanted to spend some time. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's just magical. It's a it's an amazing island. Uh, and then from there, we spent uh, another two weeks off of the coast of that in a little place called Ketal. Um And then from there, we went to Vietnam after uh, a short stint back in Phuket. Uh, and we stayed in Vietnam for about a month, traveling through the northern uh, the northern part um, from Hanoi all the way up to Sapa, which was a very uh, interesting experience this time, and not the best. Uh, but it was, you know, you learn stuff along the way, and you, it's just good no matter what. Um, and then from there, so we went to Vietnam. Um, we came here to Bali. So we were, we were coming to the end of our year and I just kind of picked a place on a map. I said, Hey, I, I want to learn to surf. Uh, let's go to Bali. It was kind of our, we had no expectations. We didn't really know what to expect. Um, so we, we came here to Bali. Um, it just so happened that I was on Instagram one day. Uh and I saw a post by the owner of CrossFit Wonderlust, Dave Driscoll, um, saying that he was having trouble with some back pain. And I was like, Oh, well, sweet. So I just text him out of the blue uh through a mutual friend and said, Hey, I'm actually I'm not a crazy person. I'm actually really good at what I do. I can probably help you with your back pain. I'll swap you for a gym membership. <laughs>
0: Good old fashioned barter system. Yeah, and
1: it worked. Uh, so, you know, the um, we came here um, and Bali is a very, I mean, you've been here for a while. It's a very unique place. Uh, it is not what you expect. It is not third world. Uh, you know, there's 4 million people on this island. So uh, it's been interesting. Uh, so we stayed here for three months and then uh, my little brother was getting married in Ecuador. So we took a long haul trip to Ecuador from Bali which was about 60 hours travel time, which really sucks if anybody's ever done that. Um, and then we stayed in Ecuador for a month and then decided to come back here. Uh, and uh, me and Tanya just working on some projects and doing some uh, doing some stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's been interesting. We have no clue still kind of what we're doing, but we have an idea of where we want to be. So it's nice.
0: Cool. Uh, what would you say the biggest cultural differences are between – Asia and Indonesia and the U S and you can also bridge that into, uh, do you see any different patterns with people over here than you do in the U S clinically? Oh yeah. So if you want to expand on that, Hmm. Uh, well,
1: Asia is known for not having a lot of back pain. Uh, there is not a lot of, um, overweight people here. Uh, and the people here are very active in general. Um, and that's been everywhere, um, even in Thailand, uh, Vietnam. I mean, they, they can squat to the ground. So their pelvic floor is really good. Uh, they have a lot of lumbar mobility. I, you know, they've getting away from the cultural stuff because I don't know if I actually see a ton of cultural differences in people anymore. I really think people are the same everywhere. I, I mean, there are cultural differences. I think here in Bali is it's a little bit more of an island mentality, and people are just super chill. Uh, but in you know when you go into Jakarta, it's not chill, but it's still Indonesia. Um, so you're just kind of seeing the lifestyle that people are living. I don't know if I really think that people are different anymore. You know, you travel the world and everybody's the same, man. I mean, people are just trying to get, you know, either they're good people or bad people, but good people are just trying to be with their family. They're trying to live a good life. They're trying to keep balance. You know, they're all just, I don't know, everybody's doing the same thing, you know, just trying to stay above water.
0: Yeah. And we, we see a lot of people with the the CrossFit gym, but outside of that, I think that people are in good shape here. Uh, because they don't compartmentalize their exercise. You don't no. see many joggers out there. <laughs> no. You see a lot of just like really like 6% body fat rice farmers that are in their seventies that can put a freaking 80 pound 80 80 pound b- pack ballad, on their back <laughs> and, and balance on a scooter with a sickle under their other arm. Yeah. So that's functional fitness at its best when it's not compartmentalized. It's not viewed as exercise. They're just, it's just throughout the day and that's what they need to do to live their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're just a lot more physically active. They can run miles in flip-flops, whereas Yeah, a lot of
1: barefoot, so the yeah. foot stuff is very different here. Um yeah, I, I, I do. And like and I would say that even in Bali, not everybody's a rice farmer. I don't want people to get that idea. I mean, there's this is a pretty, you know, not third world place. But in general, like People just here are just healthy. And I actually do think that the food here is really good. And people eat real food. The cheap food that you get on the street is really, really good. And it's, you know, somebody's cooking it. And maybe they're not using the best oil. But, you know, in general, it's real food. It's more expensive to put chemicals on crops than it is to not. So people don't use a lot of them. Uh, A lot of the meat here is grass-fed because, they have a lot of grass. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's amazing when you get that much rain.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's just an odd thing that, you know, we can go grab some meat here and it's local beef and it's grass fed. Um, and that's what people eat. And uh, they're the, the normal, um, diet here, uh, in Indonesia is a lot of vegetables, some meat, uh, ate a lot of rice too. Um, But I mean, you know, I I don't know if I've never looked at the statistics of, you know, health or heart, you know, cardiovascular disease or anything in comparison to, uh, but the people here are generally healthy. I mean, you don't see a lot of diabetes. You don't see a lot of like super unhealthy people besides the cigarette smoking. It's, it's pretty good.
0: Yeah. Everyone smokes here. Yeah. Well,
1: not, it's not even close to Vietnam though. Yeah. I mean, if you've, if anybody on this podcast has been to Vietnam, they will tell you that, I have never seen a. Uh, I have never seen people smoke so much. Just it's just crazy. Uh, even in Thailand, it's
0: more than what it is here. They put nicotine in their CPAP mask. Yeah. <laughs> so, you left San Antonio, and you had a little bit more meat on your bones than you do now. Yeah. Uh, can you talk to us about what you've done differently from an exercise and diet standpoint? I know we're going to ask your wife Tanya yeah. about some of this. Uh so just kind of hit the bullet points on what you changed whether it's uh dealing with stress how you sleep your diet your hydration that and your activity level on what you changed up to kind of break through that plateau that you were at in the US
1: Yeah it's it's I think it's kind of odd too uh when I started uh working at Arasti with you I was the same weight I am right now but a completely different build you know, seven years later, he gained four or five pounds a year. Um, it, it kind of added up. Um, and I'm a big guy; I can I can hold a lot of weight, but it doesn't mean that I feel good on it. Um, I would say that really, if anybody wants to know the secret to uh, losing weight, is to help your wife uh, get a master's in functional medicine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because uh, her journey is my journey, and I get to to ride along with that, which has been really nice. Um, and she's learned a lot. I, I would actually, you know, besides just the diet change, we played around with a lot. We did a, a three months really heavy ketogenic diet, um, which I think for me helped me to change uh, some metabolic uh, and hormone stuff. Uh, and during that ketogenic uh, really hardcore uh, it's not for everybody and it's a different you know diet, but um, it helped us or helped me a lot to change some of my metabolic conditioning uh, hormone levels. And uh, we quit drinking. And not, not everybody knows my past, but you do. I spent 10 years in the bar business and I mean, you just drink heavily uh, and I like to drink or I did like to drink. Um, so that had made a big shift on my liver, I think, over the years. Uh, and so getting my liver to recover from that and making the hormone adjustments that that, uh, entailed, um, I had to do that, uh, and it had to be pretty hardcore. So at the beginning, I lost a lot of the weight, uh, with that ketogenic diet. And then we have shifted over to a more balanced diet, uh, but still very little alcohol. Um, Tanya looks over my diet and changes things, tweaking it here and there for, um, athletic performance, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the bullet points really are, for, for me, what it has been. I don't know if stress was it. Um, for me, a lot of it has been just making the committed change to uh, eat better, be strict on a diet. The no drinking has made a big difference for me uh, because, I, I mean, I drank a lot for 10 years. So that's a big difference on your body. And, you know, I have probably drank more than most people will in a lifetime. When you run bars and nightclubs, like... It's free. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And if you, you know, if you're there all the time and you actually those kind of things sneak up on you, I think, because you don't even realize how much you can drink because it's just normal. Uh, and you know, you're around it all the time. So for 10 years, I was that way and it was through grad school too. So I was, you know, I was working 40 plus hours a week plus 30 hours at school. And it was, it was pretty crazy. So uh, you know, that was a big stressor. That was the worst health I've ever been in my life was when I graduated from school. That was insane.
0: So. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what you've been diving into clinically lately? And if you got any projects on the horizon, what your plan is over the next year or so. And, and just what you're, cause like you can drop you or I in any setting and yeah. we're going to find a way to read and watch things and look at articles. And just, we come up with, like, okay, this is the start of the rabbit hole. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole as far as I can until I'm satisfied with the answer. Yeah. Uh, what have you been kind of digging into the, the last year and a half?
1: Um, you know, a lot of it was fixing some problems that I, in on my own body, that I had neglected or really just never taken the time. I, mean, I can sit in a clinical setting and I can pick people apart and tell you everything that's wrong with you. Uh, and I can know it about myself too. Uh, But I just didn't do as much as I I should have done to fix some of these things. So over the last year and a half, uh, I have learned a lot about mobility, uh, a lot about joint centration and uh, positioning of joints. uh, Just digging in and kind of really understanding them at a deeper level, uh, especially ribcage uh, stuff that we've kind of talked about a little bit uh, together. That has been my biggest clinical stuff. I mean, the the project that I'm working on, I want to find... um, a general algorithm that will fix low back pain. uh, And that's the project that I'm working on to, to build an online version for that kind of stuff. Um, And I feel like I'm pretty close uh, not with the online stuff, but with the actual algorithms and stuff uh, to understand it from a level. You can never make something perfect. I do think it's a randomized algorithm, which means that things kind of uh, can jump up that are odd, but uh, that's the main project that I'm really working on right now. And also here in um, in Bali, I, I've had the opportunity and the curse to work with CrossFitters who just do not want to stop. Uh, and so finding effective means to make true anatomical change in positioning and centration uh, without having to have someone stop uh, has been, I, I don't know, I mean, I guess I, we both worked with a lot of athletes back home Um but I would always just, my job I felt was get them out of pain and I didn't want to deal with, you know, fixing all of their movement patterns or trying to do that. It was, we were too busy. I mean, 18 patients a day is crazy. Um, it's fun, but it's it's a lot. And so and even on chronic pain stuff, um, I've had to deal with being at the gym and, and, and helping some of the athletes there uh, who have some really you know, they have problems and they want to keep training and I want to be able to give them something that isn't a modification. Like if you want to do a snatch, find a way to, you know, get whatever you need to do the snatch. That may be rib compression. That may be hip mobility. That may be ankle stability, whatever it is, find the way, figure it out. Even if it's three or four links down the chain, you have to fix everything. If the person is willing to do it, you have the obligation, or I'd say as a doctor, you have the obligation to figure that pattern, that algorithm out. So I, you know, I don't know if that made any sense. Yeah. Or even if I answered the question, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Uh, so can you uh, give like a couple minutes summary on what you found clinically with people's rib mechanics and breathing patterns and how that correlates with hips or shoulders and how the, the pelvis can affect the, the, the rib cage and vice versa?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, for me, what I've looked at uh, is kind of looking at the system or or the body uh, in, the, in a different way of the way that I kind of think about stuff now is that you need to let the body keep resetting to a new norm. So sometimes it means getting more mobility than you really need and then letting the body find its normal or new norm stability that it comes in. So uh, rib cage mechanics come in a lot when you find a patient that has poor hip mobility over the years, that poor mo- hip, you know, sort of chicken or the egg, but that poor mobility in one area will cause an extension pattern or a, or a positioning pattern to develop over time. And so there's some neurological functions that happen that if you can't take turn your back off, you can't turn your abs on and your transverse abdominus. So the rib cages are either following um, the hips or they're contributing to this same pattern of lack of compression happening in the anterior chain and then causing the posterior chain to overexpress itself. Um, So I've, I've been able to kind of think about things a little differently when I see people with neck pain. Uh, and understand it a little bit more. Um, you know, I had a woman that I was, uh, just chatting with the other day and helping her out. Uh, and she had some neck pain and she couldn't figure out why, but she had a really good shoulder internal rotation on both sides and really good rib compression. Um, so for me, it's a little easier for me to now look at stuff like that and be like, Oh, you have a jaw problem. And she was really weirded out because, um, you know, it looked like a magician kind of thing. But in general, I was like, no, you have a jaw problem. What is it? And she's having her wisdom teeth come in on one side and just got a tooth pulled. Uh, and it's just causing her, her, her OA joint to become uh, stuck. And then that spirals down, but she had the, the correct, uh, movement in the other joints below that. So I knew it had to be coming from somewhere above. Um, and clinically, I mean, I just look at things differently now. I I think that I've been able to or hopefully been able to step back a little bit, which has been nice. Uh, I was just so busy before that I kind of got stuck into what I was good at treating. Uh, And now I've been forced to get good at things uh, that I'm not so good at. So,
0: yeah. And I think that helps us to get out of our rut every once in a while is when we get shoved out of our comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, because when you're running and gunning at 18 to 20 a day, you yep. attract more of your success cases Absolutely. and you start to, to kind of, you have a more skewed demographic of patients. Oh, even yeah. if you're in a big city, they're like, Oh, this is my shoulder guy. And yep. then they kind of lose track of, Oh, if you're the shoulder guy, can you send me to someone to fix my knee? And yeah. it's like, well, I work on knees too. Yeah. They don't even know. It's kind yeah. of weird. So it's like, oh, I thought you were only the the right shoulder guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, do you have a left shoulder guy?
1: Yeah. And even back, you know, back in San Antonio, I became, and I still am. I, I think that, like, I have a super OCD on hip mechanics. Yeah. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Um, I just, it, it seems to me to be, you know, if you can, it's big levers, you know, you can make big changes in the body with joint positioning at the hip level and understanding that and those kind of things. So yeah, it's an 80, 20, they're know. the engine of the body. And
0: it's like, you got yeah. big muscle groups, a lot of muscle mass yeah. that attach to them. And uh, so I think it's, it's one of those things that if you're really confused as a provider on where to start, the hips are probably a good spot. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the
1: everybody made fun of me. You'd be like, Oh, it's always the hips. And I'm like, but but it kind of is like, I mean, you can make fun of it and make it a joke, but it it is like you walk with your hips. So the minute you stand up, it's your hips. You know, something is going on there. If there isn't something going on there, it's actually quite odd. And that subgroup is so small that it makes it clinically easier because you go, oh, it's not the hips, which 80% of the times that is a big contributor to it. So, um, you know, yeah. Look at the fucking hips, man. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So it, it's just it's one of those things that the more distal or toward the fingers and toes you start, the more you better be right. Mm-hmm. So if you're wrong and you start that far out away from the core of the body, yes, you're you're pretty screwed if you're not exactly right, or there's not a traumatic history to where you watch them jam that finger, yeah. or you watch them get a the toe surgery yeah. uh, that created that trauma. Uh, you better be damn sure that that's the problem uh, if you're starting that far out away from the core of the yeah, body. Yeah, because
1: it just doesn't get used as much. And, and, I, and I mean, for anybody listening, I mean, me and you have harped on doctors back home, like, don't get super weird and be like, oh, your shoulder problem is your big toe, you know? Like, yeah. Don't tell patients that, man. Even if you know it, and even if, I mean, y- it's you like can... your sphenoid bonus. Toy. Yeah. <laughs> and even if it's correct, you don't need to tell people that and try to sound cool Like, you know, fix the problem, keep a lot of the stuff that the patient doesn't need to know to yourself, uh, because half the time it it doesn't make a difference. You know, like that, you know, my, my biggest pet peeve is people who try to be magicians and they want people to think that they're a magician and Ooh, look at me. And uh, I just, I don't think that that is good for the patient, you know, so look at things. And even if you understand it, there are times now where I look at stuff and I'm just like, man. How am I going to explain that? But if I feel like I don't need to explain it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to explain that, you know, their hip is really the cause of their migraine headache. You know, I just tell them to do this. You need to understand this. Here's the big picture, whatever it is. I mean, I just, you know, don't get all weird people.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And and sometimes if you know it legitimately is something way far away from the side of the pain and if my schedule's stacked up, I'm like, if you really want to know, yeah, I'll write it out mm-hmm. for you and I'll send it to you, and you can research it. But I'm not going to waste your whole appointment no. time going yeah. through the kinetic chain and teaching you anatomy and arthrokinematics yes. in the office because that's not my job but I can go above and beyond and type it out so that you know I'm not absolutely nuts. Crazy, yeah. And you can take it to any orthopedic surgeon and they can follow it and they can go, okay. Yeah, the orthopedic
1: surgeon is still going to think you're nuts. but
0: They're still going to think you're nuts, (laughs) but they're going to at least go, okay. Like, not this person. not ridiculous. Like knows anatomy and knows biomechanics. They're still going to think you're crazy. Yeah, and and, you know, really a lot of the times that that comes into
1: play too is that better be a pretty high-level athlete doing super, you know, complex movements. If this is just your average person walking, like don't get too far into
0: it, man. It's a big rabbit hole. You need a lot of volume for things to spread that far through the kinetic genes. Yes, absolutely. You need a lot of volume or you need something that people do 25,000 times a day, like breathing for something to get through the system that far. Yeah. Or you need someone Or or somebody that's, or something that's really like, man, your ankle is
1: fused. Like that is the problem. Yeah. Every time you walk, you completely screw yourself up and that, and you, you can still help that patient, but you know, you go far into that rabbit hole of being like, oh, woe is me. And, you know, or the patient starts thinking that way because, you know, there's no hope for this person. No, just show them things they can do to help themselves. It sucks.
0: Yeah. So is there anything else you want to cover?
1: No, man, it's been a great trip with you here. It makes me
0: miss home more. more so, yeah, so we're definitely going to get Steve on the podcast as soon as I figure out how to do this remote business. Uh, but we'll have this up uh, when I'm on a flight back uh, through Korea and LA and long layovers. I'll get it posted for you guys. So, uh, but we're definitely going to get Steve back on the podcast probably around October to kind of update you guys on where he's at with his projects and, and what he's up to. So, Thanks again for listening. Podcast four is in the books. Everybody back in San Antonio, I miss you. Just hey. want to say hi to all the docs. Miss you guys. Yeah. And, uh, Podcast five will be with his wife, Tanya. So we're we're going to have that up in a, in a week or two as well. All cool. right. Thanks for listening, guys. Peace.